Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital editor. In the January-February issue of the magazine, the critic Molly Haskell interviews Annette Benning about her latest film, 20th Century Women. Haskell makes a fascinating observation to kick off the interview. Quote, I was looking at these films from the early 70s. Alice doesn't live here anymore, a woman under the influence. Films about women being torn and not knowing how to negotiate their lives. Somehow, 20th Century Women is the great film of that era, you know? End quote. To expand on this idea, I brought together Haskell and Margaret Barton Fumo for a discussion about female writers, directors, and actresses of New Hollywood. It wasn't comprehensive, but how could it be? I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Molly Haskell. Margaret Barton Fumo, longtime contributor to Film Comet. So today we're going to be talking about typically... New Hollywood is thought of as this very, like, masculine time. And in many ways it was, because who were the movie brats? This young crop of go-getting young men who rose up through either, you know, Roger Corman or these other uh, film schools and got to make these great American narratives that were recycling old genre tropes from the 30s, 40s, and just really trailblazing men. But there were a lot of women and women's stories that were really dealing with what it meant to be a woman in a, living through second wave feminism, where it's like, who am I now? If, you know, if I am a wife, what does that mean? If I am going to be a career woman, what does that mean? And uh, Molly, you wrote, you've written a bit about this, sort of like the neo-women's film, the neo-women's of, film of the yeah. 1970s. So. Yeah, right. Well, it, it was a period after the, the feminine mystique when... Feminism was very much in the in the upsurge, but hadn't really been clarified. I mean, careers, we didn't think in terms of careers that much. I mean, we did. It, it was a dream, but it wasn't like, what is your career going to be? You got out, people, most people got out of college and got married. So here you had these films very, I mean, they were very much about, I also called it like the do, domestic refusenik or the mad ha- housewife film, because you had Diary of a Mad Housewife, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Clute, A Woman Under the Influence, Play It As It Lays, Coppola's The Rain People, which is sort of forgotten. You know, another thing you you had in these male sort of golden era movies was the road trips. Guys were always going on road trips. They wanted to be alone. They were fleeing whatever, women or domesticity. Rarely did you have a woman. I mean, it just wasn't done. A woman's place was in the home. But in The Rain People, you have Shirley Knight just walking out on her marriage because she's pregnant and she's suddenly thinking, "Is is this all there is? Is this what it's all about? And, of course, Clute is the Jane Fonda being a prostitute because thereby she can control her life and she can play as an object without being an object. And Alice doesn't live here anymore where Ellen Burstyn is sort of ready to song and sing and dance at, at any opportunity, and she hits the road as well. So, yeah, it was a really interesting time. I mean, they were, the, the objections were vague just because in women's minds they were. They still dreamed of the happy ending. I think you still, in fact, I encountered this with some later films, um, An Unmarried Woman with Jill Clayburgh and uh, the Gillian Anderson, Judy... Um, My Brilliant Career. My Brilliant Career, 
where these women were actually strike, striking out on their own, and I was seeing these with feminist audiences, all of whom had said, "Let's no more happy endings, and they couldn't stand it, <laughs> that, that they didn't. And happily, how could Judy Davis not, couldn't she write and still be married to Ranch or Sam Neill and so forth? So there was a lot of ambivalence. Yeah, you've said that 20th century women is sort of like the great unmade woman's film of the era, which is sort of what spawned like you revisiting these films. Could you talk a bit about like that, I guess, dig into that ambivalence? Because it is such a, I think it is a hard thing for people to, then even it was sort of a hard thing to sort of swallow and something like Barbara Loden's character and Wanda. Well, like, I forgot does. to mention that, which I yeah. think is really in a way the great film of that time because it's so complete. It has, it's harrowing, but it also has a kind of integrity and authenticity. I think the others almost look like actors' ex- exercises com- especially the Cassavetes, I think. But Barbara Loden really knew that working-class world, and it's so bleak. And she's not representative of anything. She's not a sort of feminist terror, and she's not even a typical victim. So it's almost sui generis. But there's something about 20th century women takes place in 1979, so it's a little bit after these films. And really, there's not the, the cultural reference are really music, not movies, so you don't kind of know what Annette Bening has seen, if she's been inspired by any. But she did have dreams of becoming a pilot. She was a a child of the Depression, very reserved. So it's all about this sort of little community that she has. She's a sort of hippie matriarch, and her son is her... She's a a single mother. The son barely knew his father. She's trying to bring him up in this changing world when our bodies, ourselves, is on the table and the Judy Bloom is introduced teenagers to sex. And Jamie is sort of out of sorts with his good friend because she's more advanced than he is sexually. So it's it's sort of a comedy of manners about the more these changing mores and how people are dealing with them. And Annette Benning is very complicitous with Jamie in the beginning. Uh, in his youth, she she lets him play hooky, and she has him sign a bank account and thinks of him as a real person. She doesn't want to treat him as a child, but then all of a sudden he starts doing these horribly childish things and almost gets killed in a prank. He's playing with the group, and she, she's suddenly desperate. What do I do? So she brings in Greta Gerwig and, and Elle Fanning um, to help her, and, the, and Billy Crudup also as a kind of hippie live-in lodger carpenter. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of takes a group to, to bring up this kid, but she says she wants him to be a man, and he says, what, and, and definitions of manhood are changing. And he said, well, I'm not a man, mother. I'm just a person. So it's this <laughs> idea of... Gender, some kind of genderless future or fluidity of gender, but it's sort of right in the middle of it. And I, to me, um, I don't know, uh, I seem to have responded to it more. Into, I mean, a lot of people love it, but I did, didn't get the kind of traction that other films in two, 2016 did. And I think part of it is there's a kind of messiness, which I love, a kind of, I, I say even Renoir-esque, because you really do get every person's point of view. He's really interested, Mike Mills is really interested in each character. So it's not just, and also um, it is about a mother's love for a son rather than her self-fulfillment. And that is not a kind of, that sort of strikes some feminists, I guess, is putting the male at the center of the story, but I don't see it that way. I think at that moment in time, he is the only thing in the world to her. And then we see in this kind of time-traveling way that Mills does in and out of different eras, we see him later on and her later on, and really they do have careers independent of each other. But it's this kind of, I think it's, it's something so 
Jamie has been trying to understand women's orgasms. You know, he really is the sort of the, the, the ideal kind of sympathetic male that women were always looking for, and yet he gets completely demolished by his fellow, his contemporary, the guys. I mean, all they want to do is get laid, and he's talking about women's orgasm. Like, oh, my God, what a creep. And his mother's sort of startled when this kind of conversation comes up. So it's just all these different... You feel the gener- things changing so quickly. And I, I think it shows the messiness, but also it kind of projects a future of, of hope. I mean, Dorothea, in the end, gets her dream, and she gets a guy. I mean, her touchstone has been Casablanca. She talks about Humphrey Bogart, and that, I guess, is for, for women of her generation, that was the ideal, the man that sort of takes over, what is it, Ingrid Bergman says, you've got to think for both of us, and that's kind of the attitude of let a guy do the thinking, and now w- women are having to do the thinking, and, and you see... Thinking, things, thinking being done in the movie, I think. And I guess you wrote a little bit about this in your piece, sort of talking about these neo-women's films. When you were living through it and talking about the age of ambivalence, I guess, what was that like? Because I, I mean, again, you, you talk about seeing like an unmarried woman in the theater and having people sort of react badly to it. I guess, what was the sense in the air? Was it that, you know, these films are really touching on something? Or were they just sort of like, almost there but not quite or well, like, both both yeah. in a way I think they were they were touching sore spots that that um, it, I mean we look back on it and we so we so sort of it's it's very difficult to get into the context of an age that you've passed by it's so hard to even for me that went through it to remember exactly what it felt like because now careers just seem so almost automatic and women are just so out there but women were not out there. They weren't in public life. They weren't. On, they weren't on that much on television. I mean, I think television came along even when movies were still being run by the you know the boys' clubs in Hollywood. Women were making tremendous strides in both behind and in front of the camera in television. But this was a period of reading a lot, reading Germaine Greer and Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine and. They, Ms. Magazine, when my when I wrote From Reverence to Rape, they did not print an excerpt because they did not agree with my thesis that things had actually been better for women in the studio system. They thought, well, of course, because feminism is here, that you know, the theory of progress. And later on, I did write for them, and they did come to see what I was talking about. But I said it, I remember, so this is what the general culture was not on the same page with feminism. I did... A, Joan Mellon and I did a stint for the Today Show, and we were taped talking. She had done a book on Bergman and women in my book. I was saying how how dismal the situation was. The 70s was really a low point. I mean, these films were outstanding simply because they had women at the center and great roles for actresses. How dismal it was. And then the tape was run. It was Barbara Walters who was watching the tape and then talking with her co-host, and she said, well, I just think they're paranoid, don't you? <laughs> you know. And then three or four years later, the, one of the film critics groups, I think it was a film critic circle, uh, somebody raised the idea of not even having a Best Actress Award because just to show, this was mostly men, critics, mm-hmm. just to show um, how outraged they were about this paucity of women's roles. But I said, that's not fair to the actresses. You can't just not give a, a role. But I, I mean, that was the degree... That was the sense of how women were being shortchanged at that time. And meanwhile, they were, it was one of those, it was a sort of disconnect because they were making strides in politics and, and the professions. But at the same time, movies always a little behind the time and hadn't reflected it. 
I guess to sort of rewind a little bit, you mentioned mm-hmm. this before on the podcast, mm-hmm. this wonderful book about Barbara Loaded's Wanda. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about yeah. the book and then also about the film? Is this and- a new book? New, yeah, it is pretty new. Um, I wish I brought a copy with me, but I'd love to talk about Wanda, and yeah. I'd love to really advocate um, this book. It's by a French author named uh, Natalie Leger, and it's called Sweet for Barbara Loden. But um, first off, there's the film, the film called Wanda, which is from 1970, and it's the only film directed by the actress uh, Barbara Loden, who also starred in the film and wrote it. And she based it on a uh, newspaper article from the 60s about a woman who was arrested for attempting to rob a bank and had the uh, sad kind of audacity to actually thank the judge at her sentencing for sentencing her for 20 years in prison. All this information, by the way, I've gotten from the book Sweet for Barbara Loden. Barbara Loden has said that she was inspired by that woman's hopelessness and that it was something that she recognized as being similar to her own and that she said she wanted to make Wanda as a way of confirming her own existence. Now, the book Sweet for Barbara Loden um, started off as a short encyclopedia entry for a film encyclopedia, but then it turned into this obsessive research project and eventually became this interesting little short hybrid book, which is part film analysis, part personal essay, and also very uh, describes the film in detail from start to finish intermittently throughout the book. Now, Natalie Leger, the author, I like how she has said about Wanda, the film, that she sees it as an example of a woman attempting to tell her own story through that of another woman. And she really enriches the film, I think. She teases out its, its, its major themes, which I believe are passivity and loneliness. And those are both themes that apparently, upon the release of the film, um, some feminist took issue with and criticized the film that they thought that the character of Wanda was too passive and that she reveled in her passivity and saw it as an anti-feminist film. But I, I would disagree with that. I mean, the way that I see the film is that you can, you can figure out on your own the circumstances or the mental state that would lead a woman to feel passive, lonely, useless, hopeless, and that why she might commit irrational acts or things that could be seen as anti-feminist. I think also clearly the film on its own represents a push against that passivity too. Yeah, exactly, as the film. Well, you know, I think this is the problem when you you take uh, you try to see films through an ideological construct as positive or negative. Um, there, we did a panel once. That, um, Eleanor Perry was on it, and I think Joan Hackett or somebody, and um, Betty Friedan was in the audience, and so somebody raised the point, why don't we have a rating system for how women are treated? This was right after, I think, Sam Peckinpah had done... Um, Straw Dogs? Straw Dogs, thanks, yeah. thanks, thanks. Which I actually just did not like at the time for, for feminist reasons, and I actually came to have a slightly different opinion of later. I mean, these mm-hmm. things do really change over time, but yeah. this is the heat, and the heat of feminism. But so the idea would be, I, I mean, I don't know any, that any studio would run this. Why would they? But we would have a rating system, W plus for a good positive image of women and W minus and then W minus minus for straw dogs or something. (laughs) And so the the first question is, first of all, how do you determine, I mean, positive or negative, do you want to see women ideally as triumphant over over their misfortunes or do you want to see them more faithfully, realistically as victims of uh, of a patriarchal culture? But I think 
both, you can have both. I mean, you can have women who are triumphant and women who are victims and, and women who are sort of completely apolit- who are outside of politics, which I think Wanda is, and has to be judged completely on her own terms. Yeah, and showing us at our worst is sometimes yeah. you know, feminist. Yeah, exhilarating in, in some yeah. ways, I think. Yeah. 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 So I think if that system was actually to be implemented, it should be like times. So it's like from the start to like 35 minutes in, W plus. And then after that, it gets a little minus minus. That's right. It then, that's like a truly fair. But well, that's, this, yeah. this was sort of based on the, remember the Catholic, well, you don't remember, and I don't really remember either, so even before my time, but the Catholic Legion of Decency yeah. used to mm-hmm. do this. You know, they would have forbidden films, and that's the first one everybody would go run to see, you know. So if you had sure. W minus, 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 everybody would go waiting to see women trampled upon. Yeah. Face in the dirt. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, I mean, you bring this up in your piece, like the Bechtel test now. It's yeah. It's sort of yeah. like, but it's a more more of a useful heuristic. And I even think that people who, I mean, even Alison Bechtel herself is like, well, this is not the only thing. Not a rigid mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. But I do think it's funny, though, the idea of women having, I mean, it's like Thelma and Louise, what, what came... That was one of the few films of mm-hmm. the, the female buddy film, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, and nothing much has come after. So you really don't very often in this enlightened day, you don't get women talking to each other without a man being present, except maybe on some of the new comedy things that come up from the internet. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard because it's like, um, some, you know, I'm thinking of something like Francis Ha, where it's like, this is very digging into a female friendship and like the complexities and then how sometimes it's, not nice, like how well, female I, I love the Greta Gerwig yeah. for this reason. She's always playing kind of. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't like her for that reason, mm-hmm. which I, I think is kind of. I mean, I think I think that's exciting that she could antagonize people that way, yeah, and 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 be so real and so goofy and yet smart, goofy, all these things at once. I think she's just a very exciting actress. It, but I think like the 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 female buddy comedy genre. That does not necessarily exist. It really doesn't. It <laughs> but doesn't. Again, thinking that male is default, these default male-oriented genres structured in a certain way, it's like, well, what would it take to have like mm-hmm. a female body comedy? Would you have to show that it is sometimes like female friendship is not noise, or would you just completely idealize it and then make it maybe less real than it actually could be and it's it's a it's always a hard it is and, hard and, and they should show p- women being mean to each other because they are yeah. <laughs> i've just had a few reviews that reminded me that <laughs> <laughs> the sisterhood is not always mutually mm, loving no. but <laughs> well we have broad city that's the closest yes. and that's television Wh- and it's a comedy that? it's just broad city it's a oh. comedy about two two girls two best friends i knew there was mm-hmm. something on that was on television had or to, on yeah, your, yeah tv that's the closest we yeah. can get but it's yeah. Still doesn't apply really to the buddy genre no. rules. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I mean, I really love Broad City because mm-hmm. it it gets into like the just how strange it can be mm-hmm. with this like <laughs> Alana's almost mm-hmm. lesbian affection for, for her Abby. friends. Yeah. Like how it's just like so blatant, and then mm-hmm. other times it's more coded. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, I uh, I love that show. I say no to girls always mm-hmm. and ever. But um, we can go back to we should go we should go back to the early seventies again, uh, you know Wanda. That's sort of like the refusenik housewife genre. Mm-hmm. Another film that you wrote about really interestingly was Diary of a Mad Housewife. Yeah. Obviously, the, it's in the title. It um, is. <laughs> I remember watching this on Bravo after school back when Bravo would show movies mm-hmm. and like arts instead of whatever hellish uh, reality shows it shows now. But it would be great to hear you talk about it and specifically like, you know, the Frank Langella character and 
Richard Benjamin. Richard Benjamin. Richard Benjamin and Carrie Snodgrass. Yeah. And one that I wanted to write about because it's of that era is Puzzle of a Downfall Child, the yes. Faye Dunaway. That is absolutely not, I don't think it's on video cassette or DVD. It's on YouTube. Oh, is I it? I watched it on YouTube. Oh, yeah. that's great. Somebody uploaded it. I didn't think of that. I should have. <laughs> Diary of a uh, Mad Housewife was written by a woman. And I think the problem was that it, it, it was Rich, Richard Benjamin's character was so abrasive, he was so mm-hmm. supercilious that people got sick of him. But it's actually, it looks much more interesting today. And it, this, this actually is a very expressive of what women were going through then because she's a, she is a housewife. Her, it's not a, the career that calls, but it's an affair. And Frank Langella is sort of divinely androgynous at that point <laughs> and gorgeous and, and also supercilious. Both of the men are just... <laughs> there should be another genre, the, the film about the arrogant male, because they run through all of these films. All of the, uh, the Mad Housewife films have arrogant males in them. So she starts his affair, and they're not going to let... It is, it's very much kind of the era of the zipless fuck. Nobody's going to feel anything. Just mm-hmm. for, And gradually feelings do creep in, and he's... His defense is to sort of make fun of her, of her gentility, and he he says, "I can tell you went to." I mean, he sort of lists all the all the things about her that are true, and the women's college she went to. He just has her pegged, but you know, you feel with her, and Carrie Snodgrass is terrific in this that she's a lot more than that, and she's and she's got a lot of feeling. And I was thinking of that the song "Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow?" because mm. women were trying to be independent, and yet mm-hmm. they still wanted. That assurance, and it's what we're reading, reading about it now in, in sex and college, is that mm-hmm. women do want something a little different, and they're right to yeah. want that, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we shouldn't let men get away with this. Yeah, yeah, no. But speaking of Puzzle of Don Felchild, I thought, because Carol Eastman was the screenwriter right. of that, mm-hmm. and she was also the screenwriter of one of the great Five road trip males. Yeah, yeah, Five yeah. but and, she got a lot of women into it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. and yeah. I think the the women are obviously, Eileen Ketz. I can't say her name. Katskalonides? Well, the hitchhikers they pick up are obviously like such a wonderful, like what happens over the course of giving them a lift uh, is so incredible. Obviously, like the, the restaurant scene mm-hmm. and, you know, Karen Black's character, mm-hmm. the sister, like all of, all of the women in that film are very utterly fascinating unto right. themselves. The For people who haven't seen Puzzle of the Downfall Child, sort of the the unnamed, wandering, unsettledness of Jack Nicholson's character is very present in Puzzle of a John Fall Child. That sort of uh, Faye Dunaway plays this star model. This is before, before the superstar or the supermodel. She was just a star model who, mm-hmm. you know, slowly rises through the ranks. And it's it was based on an actual model who had cracked up's experience. Like it was, it was this sort of this really long rambling tape. And that's the sort of the framing device of the movie but she's a as the film goes on and you see her rise and rise you also come to realize that she's an unreliable narrator and that there are parts of either because she suffered some trauma that she can't really open up about she keeps alluding to this you know an affair she had when she was 15 or 16 with this older rich man and there's a love scene in the in the film where she you know she goes into it wanting to have sex with this guy and then as as they're actually having sex, she there's a flash and she remembers this older man cornering her in a field and like she's like, No, I don't want to, but she still finishes having sex with this guy. And it's like such a harrowing and like very real depiction of like 
how how traumatized by sex yeah yeah like how consent how sometimes how sex can really go from being a consensual thing to a not consensual thing and it's just like like i can't even imagine a film now putting something like that yeah and it's also how your whole history is is with you every time and Mm -hmm. it's it's not just this moment with this person yes yeah i think that's great Faye Dunaway is like so amazing in it. She's totally right to call up the people on uh, Game of Thrones and give them acting notes after each episode, which I remember I've heard. Not necessarily true. Um, but she's like truly, she's like so fantastic. Well, the, the, the people wrote that she it was very close to her too, that yeah. she really was having a, a difficult time at that point. Yeah. A little I'm, bit of a crack up. I mean, she, it was, I mean, you can even see it in like the contours of her face and like how like she's glamorous, but she looks. She does look like run down. It's kind mm-hmm. of an it's it's but it's not overdone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's such a hard thing. Yeah. I, I love to talk about glamour because the, the one thing in Wanda is she. I mean, compared to her, the rest all look tarted up. She's so gritty and real mm-hmm. and unglamorized. And even her hair, which is beautiful, is still kind of uncanny. Mm-hmm. She can't control. It's all out of control. Mm-hmm. Whereas all the other women usually, and it's so understandable. How can this is one of the things I, I found fascinating in twentieth century women is how totally unglamorous Annette Benning allows herself to be. Mm-hmm. I think she looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine who's not a dummy said, well, couldn't she get dressed up just once, you know, <laughs> <laughs> when she goes out to, mm-hmm. the, to the rave? But um, <laughs> that is such a hard question. And, and all of these films, and Shirley Knight in The Rain People, she, she, she looks pretty battered. She's been crossing the United States here and there and, and bumming around but her hair is always perfectly blow-dried. Mm-hmm. And you understand this, because glamour is part of the stock and trade of women. How do, how do you mm-hmm. deal with this? I don't know. I just mm-hmm. think it's a it's a constant question, the fact that, I mean, for all of our the strides we've made, there's still that huge inequity, the double standard of aging. Right. Men still are seen as more attractive, although I think they're being called on it yes. more often <laughs> now. I mean, Harrison, you know, they have these geezer, they have make fun <laughs> of themselves as geezers, even mm-hmm. as they're acting heroes and saving women, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the the other film that you were going to bring up... Uh, yeah, slightly veering a little bit, <laughs> but also going into the, later in the decade, yeah. too. Um, I wanted to talk about the film Girlfriends as, mm. uh, as, a, as a dramedy, kind of more lighter film mm-hmm. from 78. And it was directed by Claudia Weil, and it stars Melanie Mayron, this fantastic actress, as, as this woman, Susan, who's a, a budding photographer in New York City. And she has a very close uh, relationship with her best friend and roommate, which is sort of interrupted when her roommate gets married and moves upstate. And it's very much like Francis Ha in that respect, mm. um, the plot. Eli Wallach is in it. He's kind of the name, the only name in the film. He plays her sometimes employer, sometimes love interest slash uh, rabbi. Mm-hmm. And the boyfriends are played by comedians. There's Bob Balaban, who plays his role fairly straight and Christopher Guest who becomes Susan's boyfriend so the men in the film are kind of slight name at the time I think Bob Balaban was in Close Encounters and Christopher Guest was on Saturday Night Live I think but the women were for the most part unknowns but they're just fantastic every single one of them is fantastic especially Melanie Mayron's performance I think is just so so compelling and she's self-deprecating and very funny and she's very charming still and maybe one might say quirky but still being identifiable and realistic and very naturalistic which makes me think it it's a great counterpoint to some of 
our contemporary independent films where I think we have a lot of female characters in these dramedies, the more lighthearted ones Mm. that are kind of quirky or charming to the point of being quaint. You know, mm-hmm. I think a contemporary example might be Patterson, yeah, mm-hmm. which is a film that I still loved. Actually, mm-hmm. I still love that film, but I had right. to set her character aside. Yeah. You know, yeah. sometimes I had to set her aside. She was, she was like a twist of cotton candy. You know, mm-hmm. she was lovely, but she kind of made me sick a little bit. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think that happens a lot in, in, in the more lighthearted contemporary films. And I think Girlfriends just... And also about Girlfriends, it would score very highly on the Bechdel yes. test, I think, in the W exam. <laughs> it has several scenes of women talking to each other about their own creative work, you know, and scenes of women getting each other jobs and yeah. just in general um, supporting each other. It's very nice brought that up I have to take another look at it mm-hmm. because there were a bunch of women directors at the time that were making small films and mm. sometimes they would be shown at the Whitney or there were actually women's film festivals that they would be shown at mm. and so that I mean that's gone now I think that kind of that was a real kind of filmmaking sisterhood I read that it was just filmed over the course of a year like a few days here and there you know because it was such a small film yeah. and I think that leads to it appearing very naturalistic. I mean, because how else are you going to have any continuity, you know, unless mm. you just keep it <laughs> yeah, yeah. how you know. Well, and the ending is, like, so sad and kind of harrowing mm. in a way. Like, it's How does just... it end? She goes to see her friend upstate. Yes. Um, and her friend has just... Again, just like Frances Ha, her friend had an abortion. Yeah. And um, they're just kind of consoling each other. And, and it's like the the friendship kind of picks back up again after mm-hmm. b- being down for a bit. And they get drunk, I think. Yeah. But then still the husband kind of comes home. And Melanie Mayron's character is like, okay, I've got to go home now. You mm-hmm. know? So it still reverts back to the husband and wife kind of have the primacy of the mm. relationship. Yeah. How do you think the relationships among the females are in girls? Oh, God, I don't mm-hmm. watch that show. Yeah. Well, <laughs> did you yeah. ever? I don't, I, I I don't watch it either, saying. but I, I felt I, I watched it at first. And, yeah, I and I did admire her for kind of putting herself out there yeah. and showing herself to be a flawed character i mean people again people criticize her for that and make fun of her and think she's insufferable but she knows it too i mean she's directing and writing these things she knows she's insufferable <laughs> and it doesn't she doesn't she experiences more criticism than say i i really don't think this is a stretch but at the time like louis ck mm. i think was doing something similar in a way you know just showing himself to be a flawed human being and kind of putting himself out there and well no he was compared to woody allen when real and when in reality he's ripping off david lynch yeah well and also i think i would the other thing i would say about louis is that as the seasons have gone on and he's gotten more insufferable Mm -hmm. i have less patience for that show and now i don't watch it at all like i just like me neither but i just can't yeah just the distinction yeah Yeah, between women and men showing themselves to be flawed characters and the type of criticism that they receive is different Mm. yeah and i would actually say to return to carol eastman before i switch topics that Mm. she was an incredibly neurotic person Mm. and it's funny to think that a cruel unanswerable thought experiment what if she was a man and was that neurotic would it be Mm -hmm. a thing of like Mm -hmm. oh it's like a woody allen sort of thing it's charming or Mm -hmm. would it just be like no this is literally getting in the way of working Mm -hmm. anyway another 
female director who wrote a significant amount, who had incredibly flawed characters, but I think the distinction is she loved them. Mm. It was Elaine May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Elaine like May. just thinking about, you know, the heartbreak kid, mm-hmm. like this is this is an utterly unredeemable, terrible person, and yet the sense, or even like a, a I mean, new the Groden life. character or the Jeannie Berlin character. I think both of them. Yeah, I mean, both of them. Like, just yeah. like I can never get over that scene where you know they're on their honeymoon and like they fail. They, they have this, and then he's like, "Where are you going?" Mm-hmm. Pee pee, and just to get it, like how perfect that moment is, like, and just you understand why he absolutely has to get away from this woman, and yet you feel horrible for her. Like you, it's like it's like it's really like the way that it's made. It really takes you through all of these different perspectives, and then I have no problem saying it's better than The Graduate. I don't care. <laughs> Fight me. <laughs> but like just the repetition of close to you, and how after a certain point, it's like becomes ironic and then like very cutting and sad and like I don't know I think it's very masterful in how it takes you through these different subjectivities and like affinities for these characters. Mm. Interesting because that's another one that looks different today. At the time women did criticize it because it felt like she was just trashing her daughter. It just felt like this (laughs) giant humiliation for Jeannie Berlin. And compared to Civil Shepherd, I mean you know. Yeah. And and in a way I, I mean I still think it does humiliate her but the Groden character is just a horse's ass but he's still cute though (laughs) that's the try I mean she's not cute she really (laughs) is squirm inducing yeah but I I mean that was also some in the in in Cassavetes and other directors at the time the kind of the cinema of discomfort you could call it and Cassavetes Mm -hmm. loved to make you uncomfortable Mm -hmm. but the discomfort in the heartbreak kid I think you have to see it a couple of times before you kind of get the whole picture because, yeah. as you say, it changes gears and it does it reflects different people in different ways. And I think the man is kind of the center simply because it's a man. The triangle is mm-hmm. he's at the apex of that, but in the end, he's just he's made this bargain that he's a loser. I mean, yeah, yeah, and that he's just surrounded by children at yeah. the end yeah. <laughs> because that's what he is. Like mm-hmm. one of the great pioneers of the man-child genre was Ishtar, which is obviously mm-hmm. much later. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even something like um, A New Leaf where, again, it's like the character she plays is just so whiny and nebbish and terrible and yet she she wins. And obviously uh, Walter Matthau's character is such a ass and terrible like he's he's rich and terrible like there's yeah. nothing redeemable about him and yet and yet you really do come to sort of an understand it's, it's not totally implausible at the end what happens like it is like i went somewhere and i didn't realize i was being taken somewhere and now i'm here and i'm mm-hmm. fine with it well the trouble is that i think this is the narrower latitude that women have because mm-hmm. um it's a really difficult thing to bring off to have a ridiculous woman, and even in these shows we're talking about, and, and girls like that. Because first of all, pe- people are ready; men are ready to just dismiss any woman who doesn't meet their expectations. Exactly. So already you're facing that. Whereas they're much more indulgent. Women and men are more indulgent and tolerant of male misbehavior. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've just got that that barrier that's always there. So I I really give full credit to the women who've broken this barrier. And I think the more it happens, the more acceptable it is. Like with Annette Benning, I think if we could see more women who are just sort of weather-beaten and, and that's who they are mm-hmm. and who are so obviously authentic, then, then we can accept it. But there is this tendency to want women a little more plastic and glamorous. Yeah. Because, well, I mean, in your piece you talk about how, like, 
the struggles that were present in, you know, these early 70s yeah. films come in the 80s to be like played out in these vastly different situations where it's like, oh, it's like this very confident career woman is having this crisis. And it's like it's mm. it, it or like these very beautiful women or very glamorized women are just like it's it, it, it sort of, you know, the context shifts in a way that makes the internal working through of like what feminism actually really mm. means mm -hmm less feminist somehow or uh -huh. just like not as sincere the have it all the have it all syndrome oh. yeah, i think yeah. you wrote you wrote about yeah. yeah well like also they they're they're so easy to and this is true in all hollywood movies too the professional woman is so is like right one step short of caricature already mm -hmm. i was looking at something when i was doing the annette benning piece at american beauty and i just her character there she got an, an academy award nomination as support i think but her housewife character is so awful. Everyone else mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. picture misbehaves, but they're all forgiven. You have this empathy for every single other person, and she's just a shrieking mm -hmm. parody of womanhood the whole way through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, that movie doesn't age too well. No. no. <laughs> like, for a lot of reasons. And it's very unusual because she's always, the thing about her is this tremendous humanity I think mm -hmm. she has, and and for her not to be able to express that is, is something bad. Are there any other films that we didn't get to? Oh, well, I think actually, I think what you said about woman under the influence, speaking of a shrieking housewife. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think what you said about a woman under the influence is really excellent because I've always had a problem with that film uh -huh. and I could never put my finger on why as opposed to something like Minnie and Moskowitz which is like I know I love I love that movie so I much and too. it's I so agree. touching yeah I do too. but it's just like but women under the influence it's just like I could never fully like I everyone it's like one of those things where it's like I is it like my taste buds are broken or like what is wrong with I, me? I agree I'm so yeah. glad to hear you say it because I've had the same problem and men seem to like it enormously I'm, yes. not, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> I think it's why they like Isabel Huppert well I like her too but won't get into that um but yeah I, and I think it's because she embodies some this this anti-bourgeois impulse of of Cassavetes to just make everybody so uncomfortable and if we if we are uncomfortable then that make, makes us part of this the terrible family, the, the mm -hmm. repressive family. It's very um, actor studio-ish realism. You don't have a, the um, husband. Peter Falk is the construction worker husband, and all he's got all these construction worker friends. It's a little odd. I mean, they're, they're living a sort of middle-class life or lower middle-class life. The mother, they actually had, they're real mothers, I think. Jenna Rowland's mother, anyway. It's a mother in it. And... Uh, she just cracks up. One day she's with the children, and then she's suddenly babbling, and they send her off to the to an institution. And Peter Falk is the loving husband who, and he's meant to be incredibly sympathetic, although mm -hmm. I, I find him, I just don't get that marriage exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so he has his buddies over, and then she comes in, and I guess the, the climactic scene is when they bring her home from the institution from the loony bin and hope to embrace her, bring her back to the family. But it's, they've staged this party, which is all wrong. You know, already mm -hmm. this is cast. Well, how would you, wouldn't you allow her to come in a little privately? No, no, no. They have this sort of showdown in the living room. It's very theatrical. In fact, it was written first as a play. And Jenna Rowland said, I can't do it. It's just too demanding mm -hmm. to do. It was really, it's like a monologue, this incredible breakdown that she has. So each person plays a kind of, preordained role of conventional society. And I think a lot of the other things that were going on at this time were Herbert Marcuse and also um, 
the British psychiatrist, not Winnicott, the British psychiatrist R.D. Lang, mm-hmm. who said that he felt that society was, it was this sense of anarchy is justified or uh, rebellion is justified because society itself is insane. Insanity is the only way to respond to an insane society. And this became the kind of, you know, anthem of a lot of these movies. And I think particularly this is true in the Cassavetes. It almost doesn't have to have a co- kind of coherent substratum. It's just the idea of her insanity as a reaction to this insanely repressive society. Mm-hmm. But I think there's never any opening for, for to me for genuine feeling. I mean, she 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 goes to a bar and she's very much his kind of actor anyway, which means extreme and histrionic mm-hmm. and and the sort of seething and um, I mean it can it can work wonderfully. But I think I agree. I think Minnie and Moskowitz is the best because it's it's contained in some way and it has a more kind of direct human contact with the audience. I think mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and just like the relationship. What she goes through feels like way more representative of a woman's experience. Yeah. Where it's like she goes on that terrible date with the older guy and it's like how that plays out and like the the rhythms of that. It's like that's a real thing as opposed to you say like this big weird party. Yeah. <laughs> it's, also, it's sort it's, of like this set piece It's thing. incredibly stagey. Yeah. I think yeah, that's yeah. when you compare these to something like Wanda. Mm-hmm. I mean you wouldn't want every film like Wanda but right. still – there's a kind of, you feel that Barbara Loden is so close to that character she's playing mm-hmm. that, you know, you can hardly see the air between them. She is playing it. She's not that. The fact that she makes the films means it's, the film means she's not a victim anymore. And, of course, she got, everybody thought that Elia Kazan was really the one that made it and that he was taking all the credit. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think it sort of bothered him in a way that she had done this thing on her own and so so beautifully and successfully. But it is interesting about A Woman Under the Influence, and I'm not sure why it is. Well, for, for some critics, Cassavetes can do no wrong just because he is so right. um, over-the-top and um, adventurous and all of that. But I find that, for me, Cassavetes a little goes a long way, which is one reason that, that the Elaine May film I didn't love just because I, I just... There's something I think Cassavetes was wonderful in Rosemary's Baby because there's something really scary oh, yeah. about him, and he can do that. But, of course, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to do his own thing, and mm-hmm. that became a bit too much for me sometimes. Yeah. I mean, also, it's good to keep in mind that, like, Mikey and Nikki was not actually finished. Uh-huh. Like, it was taken away from her, and yeah. the studio sort Who of knows just what released it could this. Have, yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's, like, very... Elaine May, I saw her speak once uh, after a screening of Ishtar, and she was talking about how, like... Like when she did her first film, she didn't realize that you needed to do coverage, uh-huh. and so sort of like these basic <laughs> things. And then it's like, but then she was someone who went on to be this like ultra perfectionist who would like want a hundred takes of something, and uh-huh. then that you know that's okay for Stanley Kubrick, but it's not okay for Elaine May. Yeah, so like these yeah, films yeah. get taken away from her and like made out to be these gigantic disasters when in reality it's still pretty damn funny and yeah. did pretty well at the box office well, is, is there a, a version of it now that's closer to what she wanted or of Mikey and Nikki oh Mikey and Nikki yeah. uh, I don't think so because no. I just think it just like was like it was during the shooting and it yeah. was never like yeah. no, but, but I have to revisit both of those I mm. think because you do get swayed by the critical temper of the time of and and they are a mess but in some ways but Cassavetti's got complete credit for his mess and she, she didn't you know <laughs> Exactly, but I guess she did. She was working with big money at the, with Ishtar, so that was a problem. I guess. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we have to 
close, we have to start wrap up. But before we do, we always go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. Um, I can go first to yes. give you some time to think. No, I've got one too. So. Okay. So I rewatched Reds recently. <laughs> well, you mentioned Elaine May having something to do with it. Uh, I yes. heard that. Apparently she like helped write because this is the other thing about like, Elaine May. She's sort of notorious for like working on things and, and then not, not getting any credit. Yeah, yeah. Or not put or like not announcing herself as like having worked on it or All sort right. of like You mean in later lot not even taking credit yeah, later. Yeah. 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 And so she did some work on Reds, which is this gigantic, sprawling historical epic about communists with also this like really amazing like Henry Miller, for instance, died the year after. There's these amazing one-on-one interviews with uh, people who were involved in in the New York scene, who were communists, socialists, uh, free-thinking, super leftists. But yeah, it's just like Warren. It's I think it's probably my favorite Diane Keaton performance where she's not playing like this weird airhead. Goofy, yeah, she's like not goofy at all. She's just like very like she knows exactly what she wants, and then when she doesn't know what she wants, she's kind of terrified but she makes it through it like it's it's a really well, also fantastic. she's a little bit cryptic she's not oh, always yeah. telling you what she wants yeah. the film is very subtle i watched mm-hmm. it because you, you mentioned it yeah. and i was blown away by it I, yeah. I really think it's great i think those witnesses are fantastic mm-hmm. um i think rebecca west was one there are all sorts of people yeah. that re- they really conjure up the that period of, of sort of bohemian left-wing village yeah. but in the beginning when you see diane I was sort of, wait a minute now, because you just so expect her to fall into that. She has mm-hmm. such a strong personality that it's almost hard to see her as a character. Right. But she absolutely does. And the triangle is so powerful with her and Eugene, Eugene O'Neill, played by Jack Knuckles. I think it's some of his best work. Yes. I mean, all of them are in the service of the film in some way. Even Warren Beatty. I mean, mm-hmm. he's the star, but he also is. And I just think it's... I mean, I th- the ending, I was just I just in- dissolved. Yeah. But you don't know which way she's going to And you always feel that pull to, to o- O'Neill. It's, I mean, usually, you know, you give up one guy and you go for the other. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that triangles stay with you. And you don't, you may renounce one person officially, but that person's still there with you. And mm-hmm. you feel that with that. It's, I was amazed at how rich and subtle it is. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously, it's super long, so it can yeah. sort of get into these little, like, weird places and like you know again it's like I don't because I don't know and no one can really know exactly what except for her what Elaine May added to the script but they're just these little moments of comedy mm-hmm. or lightness or just mm-hmm. goofiness or even like Warren Beatty is called up before the like the head of the Communist Party in Russia and it's like a really dire time and they're basically telling him no you cannot leave the country and this guy is eating an onion and some lemon <laughs> and it's like I think that's Elaine May I want to believe yeah. that's Elaine May and then he's like offering it to Warren Beatty and Warren Beatty's like uh, no and he's like lemons are very hard to come by that's great and yeah. I, wouldn't it be fun to know what she had done oh Gosh, absolutely it, 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 I don't know if that's ever going to be possible yeah it's also just like amazing on an epic scale but it anyway. is but. and even looking at it I was looking at it on my iPad it still looks great oh, yeah. yeah that's the first time two people have watched the same film for the podcast it's it true. worked out very <laughs> Well, she brought it, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, well, totally different. I, I watched Adam McGoyan's Exotica, oh, which okay. I've wanted to see for a really long time. And years ago, I used to get it mixed up with Jade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh. Because I think the back in the 
VHS days, the 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 video art, the cover art was very similar. I, I, I remember this. Yeah. I used to get those two mixed up, but I've wanted to see Exotica for a long time, and I watched it on YouTube mm. uh, because I that's starting to happen now. I think films that are out of print. And they look um, okay? They This looked very good. Mm. Then there was also a different copy on there that looked terrible, but what made the one that I watched... Um, I was just having a conversation with mm-hmm. someone at Exotica, and oh yeah, I always wanted to see that. And they said, let's just see if it's on YouTube. And I thought, no way. Yeah. And it was in its entirety. And it was everything you know I'd hoped it would be. I don't want to just talk about it too much because a lot of information is doled out kind of out of order you know, in the film. But it's about a strip club. It's also not really about a strip club. <laughs> and uh, also there are parallel stories of the strip club and a man who works in an exotic pet store so there are themes of exotic exotica in the film mm. and I, I enjoyed it very much what year was that? 94 uh-huh. very much a film of 1994 <laughs> you know people are always complaining nothing that the, the thesis of this book that I wrote an essay for is about the golden age the early late 60s and early 70s but, you know, every I don't believe in golden ages. I think every age, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many things in, that, that we can see now that are just fantastic. And, I mean, Hollywood, who cares? People, that's all the data and statistics about how many women directors there are, how many women on the screen, or what the, how much they say, doesn't give a true picture. Because, first of all, the, uh, most of Hollywood is franchise pictures and action pictures. And who wants to, we don't even go to most of the Right, who things. cares? Yeah, who cares? <laughs> who cares? And what you're seeing when you see women, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the amount of verbiage that they spew out. So I just think you have to sort of look at it with an openness and be ready for whatever comes our way. And I think both of you obviously are, (laughs) if I may say so. Hooray. (laughs) Well, thank you both for coming. This was so much fun. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.